0: From the MGMa in home studios, welcome to the Insights podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: I think if you know the pandemic taught us nothing, and it taught us a lot. But if it taught us nothing, it's that we need to stay alert, um, stay aware. Of of changing regulations and rules, and, and what we are going to need to do to prepare, not only for you know the next healthcare crisis, but how can we relate to um, healthcare workers?
0: That's Sue VanderSamen talking about some of the lessons healthcare leaders have learned during the pandemic. We'll hear more from Sue in just a moment, discussing what makes a great leader. But first, a word from our sponsors. MGMA's Medical Practice Excellence Financial Conference is an industry-leading financial management conference designed to arm healthcare professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. The Financial Conference brings together leading financial experts from across the healthcare spectrum to discover the secrets to thrive during challenging times. The conference is held from March 31st through April 2nd in Atlanta. Go to mgma.com/events to register today. And if you register by February 8th, you'll get the early bird registration price. As a healthcare organization, you routinely check your patient's health, but when was the last time you checked the financial health of your business? Don't let bad billing processes keep you from your hard-earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see out a claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting carecloud.com slash assessment. Our guest today is Sue Vandersamen. Sue is Institute Vice President of Pediatrics at Allegheny Health Network. Sue's here today as part of MGMA's new Leadership Podcast, where we invite healthcare leaders to discuss their leadership journey talk about their influences and mentors, and provide insights on what great leadership looks like. Sue, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thrilled to be here. Thank you.
0: Great. Now, as part of our leadership podcast series, I'd just like to start out with each person who comes on here to just give us an idea of how they define leadership, how they define successful or great leadership.
1: Great question. So I really define a great leader as one who can put aside their personal goals and interests for the greater good of the organization. So let me break that down a little bit. You know, my motto has long been to check your ego at the door. And I feel that we in healthcare really need to focus on our consumers, whether we're in the insurance business or direct patient care and ensuring that every decision we make is focused on the betterment of our patients and healthcare consumers and their experience. And I feel that the rest really falls into place if you keep that patient-centered focus.
0: That's perfect. So thanks so much for that answer. Now, let's dig a little bit into your career as a leader. You have your FACMPE. You also have your FACHE. You're currently... Institute Vice President of Pediatrics at Allegheny Health Network. So, I'd love for you to just take us down uh, memory lane here and and share a little bit of the highlights uh, from your career as a leader and the things that you feel like have really uh, impacted you on that journey.
1: Sure. I the interesting part I think is that I landed in healthcare completely by accident. I was an English major in college. I don't have a doctor, a nurse, or a compelling story that led me into healthcare. Actually, a family friend wanted to take some time off, and I happened to be at a point in my career where I could help her manage her husband's practice. And so that was my first foray into healthcare, and that was in the early 1990s. And it has truly been true love ever since. I've had the most wonderful opportunities to work um, only for really three organizations in my 20 plus, 25 plus, oh, I'm dating myself, year career. And, you know, I think the most interesting part is most of us in healthcare spend our time in, in, you know, pretty mainstream healthcare, taking care of our patients, et cetera. When I worked in, in New York, I was able to be a part of the Demonstration Reform Incentive Payment Program, which is a fancy way of talking about Medicaid expansion and population health in, the, uh, in New York State. And it really opened my eyes and helped me understand what happens to our patients when they leave our four walls and when they, you know, get home and do they have running water and do they have transportation and do they know the blue pill from the green pill? And so it really opened up my eyes as a healthcare leader to recognize that there is a whole life outside of our, um, outside of our four walls. And so I think that was really something that shaped me as I've moved forward. And, you know, and I've pretty much just made my career choices based on where I feel I would be a great fit and where my skill set would benefit the organization. So I left Florida last February and joined the great uh, team at Allegheny Health Network and trying to, you know, affect care for our kids in Western Pennsylvania. So it's really been an amazing journey.
0: That is cool. And you mentioned something when you got started there, you said it it just kind of happened. uh, And that's, a story I've heard from some other people who are on that business side of healthcare. And I was doing some digging and researching you. And you mentioned, Oh, I just had a, a start in English, but I, I, I had some envy when I saw that when uh, you had an English degree from NYU and that's uh, one of the truly esteemed English departments in, in America's academia. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that, what that experience was like, and coming from that English liberal arts background, how you've been able to apply that into healthcare.
1: Going to school in Manhattan in the 80s was probably one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life, and I've had some great experiences. That was incredible. It was uh, wonderful. My mom was... was. Uh, you know, single mom at the time and, and really supportive of me. And so, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't inexpensive, you know, to go to NYU. Now it's crazy, but, but back then it wasn't inexpensive and, and it was absolutely fantastic. And it really opened my eyes to, again, a a whole different world of, of reading and literature and, and it really developed a lifelong love of writing and communication for me. And again, so I so I really thought I was gonna go into publishing or writing or something, not in healthcare. But what it's done for me is I, I've actually published a couple of articles. One was my um, fellowship paper, which was published by Connection, which I was very proud of. Um, and so it's so it's really been. I think learning the English language, learning to be able to speak and communicate, is is very important. And I think it um, it's not always recognized. When I was an English major, you know, back then people thought I was crazy. But I think that it's really helped me to to be able to read and write and and communicate effectively. So I, I think it's been great for me. I've encouraged both of my daughters to uh, pursue a career in English, and both of them have. So it's so it's great.
0: I love hearing that story because I also was in uh, college during the 80s and trying to find my way and my parents were both uh, academics. They were professors at the college level and they were both on the liberal arts side. That's where they started and they said don't major in English which was <laughs> One of my dreams, I wanted to uh, major in either English or film, and they went, Don't do that.
1: <laughs> and so, oh, isn't that funny? That's, I know. It's... And
0: so I majored in business and kind of uh, went through that for a while. And then I just said, You know what? I don't care. I'm going to go back and just started freelance writing. And then finally, you know, here I am 35 years later. And it's been my career has been in communicating, you know, through, uh, either the written word or now more more than often than not the uh, verbal the audible word here um, right podcast and so it's so cool to learn about people's journeys and where those passions can flourish so I do have to ask because I am a bibliophile do you have some favorite books uh, first literature wise that helped shape you or these just adored uh, when you were that English major and, and studying in that in that realm.
1: Wow, we could we could spend hours, I think, on this uh, on this call. Uh, one of my absolute favorite books remains to this day is *Catcher in the Rye*. I, I don't know why it appealed to me so much. Maybe mm-hmm. it's that coming of age of Holden Caulfield and and um, his struggles as a youth. Um, as I've as I've gotten and I read the, I've read all the, you know a lot of the classics, the, the Jane Eyre, the Brontes, etc as I, as I've grown older, the interesting thing is what I've, I've become much more interested in American history. So, mm-hmm. so now, now I've sort of switched. I, do, I rarely read modern fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Although Gentleman from Moscow was one of my all-time favorite mm. books. Um, absolutely fabulous for your, for your readers. I would strongly recommend it. Um, but I've been reading a lot of, you know, David McCullough, who writes, who mm-hmm. writes wonderful biographies um, of, american historians that are not dry and they're very easy to read so um i almost always have a book that's you know it's just something i really enjoy it helps me escape um you know every day it's wonderful
0: it really is and that's that's so interesting that you kind of gave that history of it because uh catcher in the rye i got to experience that again uh when i have a daughter in high school uh and she was assigned that. And we kind of read it together because it was one of those formative books for me when I was beginning writing. And so it is, uh, Salinger just has that pitch perfect ear for language, particularly of that uh, that teenage, teenager in angst. So that's a wonderful way. But the other thing that you said was so interesting, and I've I've seen that with many other people who love books, that they start out in fiction uh, as their primary reading, and then they move into that uh, reading of history and other nonfiction. it's so interesting that you you went that route as well uh, to the most part, as you were saying. and so uh, David McCullough definitely is one of the titans in that in that field as well for people who want to know more about that. So I think we it, it's interesting to talk about that because I believe that it can help us as leaders help us as just, uh, teammates uh, on a staff when we are able to really experience and express our passions. And for the two of us, it's clear one of those is reading. So I do want to delve into the leadership side of that. So are there some leadership books or other uh, resources that have helped shape your leadership style and, and uh, helped you as a leader?
1: One of the books that I keep close by is Crossing the Quality by the Institute of Medicine because I think it's 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 timely and it's important regardless of the fact that it was written I believe in the 90s um, about you know the importance of safety and healthcare. But when I think about my my leadership and my leadership style, I actually am drawn to an article that I read years and years ago, um, so so long ago actually that I printed it. Um, how old-fashioned of me! And uh, I carry it with me wherever I. I go, and it's, it's on servant leadership, and, and it's just something that resonated with me, Um, so I've kept that with me um, wherever I've gone.
0: Oh, that's so interesting, so I want to talk about that now, then, because you were talking about that um, fellowship paper that you wrote for your FACMPE, it was published in Connections Magazine, that's published by MGMA, so I want to talk first about that article and then a little bit about the fellowship as well. So just give us an idea. I know that you may not have it memorized at this point. You wrote it a lot, but perhaps uh, a while back. When did you write that and give us an idea of just what the, I guess, the major theme was, what your points were in that fellow paper?
1: Oh, so I wrote the fellow paper, I I want to say probably about 2018 or 19, maybe, you know. late teens, let's just say. And at the time I was working for Johns Hopkins All Children's in the oncology uh, department. So and one of the one of our main focus points was adolescents um, who are diagnosed with cancer. So we talk about, you know, when we flip back to catcher in the rye and teenage angst, et cetera. So what does every teenager want to do but fit in with their friends? They don't want to be undergoing chemo and and you know, balding and et cetera. And so there's this real crisis among adolescents um, with, you know, with the care that they receive and, and getting into clinical trials, et cetera. So, so I really focused on that from, you know, not from a clinical standpoint, because I'm not clinical, but from an administrative standpoint, and how can we, you know, recognize this gap, you know, in this population's care. And and address it through uh, programs and you know um, trials, etc. So it was it was such a great exercise. I will I will say it, it's it's daunting. I mean it was a daunting um, undertaking, but so worth it. It was so challenging and really pulled together. You know my passion for healthcare, my passion for writing and my passion for, you know, bringing to light this um, critical population.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what a great story there. And I want to delve into that just a little bit more. So give us an idea, because uh, many of our listeners either already have their FACMPE, or they're maybe considering it down the road. W- what was your path like? Did you was there a light bulb moment? Was there a mentor? How did you know to go, this is, this is what I want to pursue and this is the path I want to go down in healthcare?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I have, as you, as you noted, I have my F-A-C-H-E um, and I have my master's. The missing piece to me was the F-A-C-M-P-E. I've been a member of MGMA since my very early years in healthcare. It was the first management organization that I joined when I got into healthcare. And so it's an organization that I support and that means a lot to me and my career and my growth and my development. So it really was in my career, it was the one missing piece. So I knew that it was really important to me to take this next step. And what was so fantastic for anybody who's considering it, I would say at the outset, it is daunting. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a writing a paper that's, you know, several pages, um, you know, in addition to working full time and, and may, many of us raising families, um, it can be a lot. But the satisfaction, first of all, we get great help from our MGMA colleagues throughout the entire process. That was fantastic. So you're not alone. And the other piece is, it is such a great challenge. And it's the exercise is fantastic. And then when it's over, I was just, I was, you know, I hate to say it, but I was so proud. I was just, <laughs> it really, you know, I know that's not something we're supposed to say out loud. Oh, no, you are. But, but I really was. I, I was so proud of it, and proud of those credentials. And I feel like it's really rounded out my my professionalism. And mm-hmm. and I think it it shows the world that I'm a serious healthcare leader.
0: Exactly. And do, please don't apologize. I think that's something that we need to do more of in our culture. We we seem to. Uh... drown in the misery of a loss, and a and, you know, uh, a defeat, so to speak, in life, we need to celebrate those wins too, wherever they come from. And particularly when you climb a mountain like uh, a fellow uh, program, and you did two of those and a master's degree, you know, you need to pat yourself on the back and celebrate those. And I do like that. Uh, You and I have connected on LinkedIn. And I do think that's one of the cool things about LinkedIn when someone does uh get a degree or get a certification or some other win or a new job whatever it may be they will post that and and they get a lot of people who have known them all along that path who jump in and have comments and uh i think that kind of collaborative celebration is such a cool thing so uh please don't ever apologize about that and i i do want to ask you though in a program uh like the FACMPE, the FACHE, the master's program that you were in, it's clear that you're a lifelong learner. So I wanna talk to you about that. What are your thoughts on that? It's clear you're committed and passionate about lifelong learning. What does that mean uh, as a leader, particularly in a healthcare practice or organization?
1: I think if, you know, the pandemic taught us nothing, and it taught us a lot, but if it taught us nothing, it's that we need to stay alert, um, stay aware of of changing regulations and rules and, and what we are going to need to do to prepare not only for, you know, the next healthcare crisis, but how can we relate to Um, healthcare workers, you know, people, how can we get people to enter the healthcare field? You know, that there's a, you know, everybody knows there's a, there's a staffing crisis in healthcare. How can we adapt and learn and adjust so that it's not this top-down, heavy-handed, you know, you will do things my way um, type of leadership? It's really adapting to what are the needs of our staff who are coming in. And I have to understand, I have to know that, you know, hiring a 22 year old is gonna be different from hiring a 55 year old. And how can I adapt my style, my leadership, my conventional wisdom to ensure that I am meeting the needs of this next generation of healthcare workers. So that's just one, um, you know, one way in which I feel it's really important to stay abreast of, of, of trends
0: hmm It's so interesting that you talk about that top-down leadership, about how so many organizations across the country are getting away from that. Um, our producer, Rob, who's on this call with us now, uh, he and I are in a book club at MGMA that's been started recently, and we're reading, we're reading Quiet. I don't know if you've read that particular book, but there's some really interesting concepts in there that People, leaders come from all different personality types. For a long time, there was that uh, thought that it was that very charismatic or demonstrative type leader that though there's still a lot of those leaders too, but they're also the more quiet, the introverted leaders, the analytical leaders, the the thinkers who maybe stay back and analyze and then present their thoughts, but it's also helped for sure in organizations that it's not as vertical as it used to be. Now there's more inclusiveness to have horizontal organizational structure where people can lead from uh, any level in the organization. Um, So I wanted to talk to you about that, uh, what your thoughts are on the kind of evolution of uh, leadership styles and organizations as well.
1: Well, that kind of gets back to my article that I was referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, probably written 15 or 20 years ago on servant leadership. And it, it resonated with me to such a point, as I said, that I've kept it with me wherever I've gone. And, and, and simplifying it, you know, obviously I can't do it justice, um, just in a, in a quick uh, comment, but you know, simplifying it. In healthcare, I can't think of another industry in which those of us who were less educated, even though I have my master's, I, I'm working with doctors who mm-hmm. have, you know, who have their MD, their DO, their PhD. Um, in what other industry do you have folks who are who are less educated, you know, trying to direct and help those who are, you know, have this higher level of education. Um, and, and so finding yourself in that, you know, too often I I've had to say, hey, I'm not clinical. I understand that, but let's let's think about it from this way and forming those partnerships the same with our frontline staff, you know, so getting into the concept of servant leadership, my role is truly to serve those who are caring for our patients. My, you know, it sort of flips this concept of leadership on its side. So if you, you have to take away that top down in healthcare and the most successful organizations have done that, recognizing that we in our leadership roles, are there to support and serve those who are working on the front lines, taking care of our patients.
0: That is such a cool way to look at that. And I was you—you you brought up the servant leader again, so I—I'm so glad that you—you you wove that into the to the idea of what's really resonated with you as a leader. So. Um, you mentioned just a moment ago though that uh, you were mentioning the pandemic and how it has changed us and, and transformed us so much. So I wanna to talk to you about that. What, what has that experience revealed to you as a leader? How have you adapted, evolved, and worked with your teams uh, during this trying
1: time? One of, you know, there's, there's nothing good about the pandemic. So let me just clarify my comments there. But one of the things that I learned is that we can be a lot more nimble in healthcare than we ever thought possible. How many years have we tried to stand up a telemedicine, you know, platform and telehealth, et cetera? And it was always, well, this equipment, this regulation, this piece of that, you know, there's always these how it's not going to work. And probably within 48 hours of shutdown, we were able to stand up a robust telemedicine program, telehealth program, meeting the needs of our patients where they are. And I think that that just has um, such great implications for the future when we think about, you know, getting back to social determinants of health and how we can meet our patients where they are not, not everybody in America has access to a car or public transportation. Well, how can we take something like telemedicine and be able to care for our patients, take it to a new level, and care for our patients where they are at home, you know, or, I mean, that's obviously, you know, again, simplifying a, a complex system, but I think what it taught me is we can think outside of the box in healthcare and be a lot more nimble than than we ever thought possible.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that is a great way to look at it, and some of those changes, it, I think we we, we showed ourselves in healthcare that we could make those changes when basically forced to because of the pandemic, but that there are so many creative, innovative people out there that are ready to make those changes. Some of those uh, telehealth related were connected and tied to regulatory issues, but then sure. there were so many amazing stories. I've talked to many practice administrators, practice leaders who stood up a telehealth practice put that platform in place over the course of a weekend from a Friday to a Monday and being able to reach those patients where they could. And that was just such, a, such an amazing thing to experience and to uh, have that happen. What, what was y'all's telehealth experience where you were? Did, did you already have something in place and you just then communicated to the patients? What, what did that look like?
1: Well, I had I joined AHN sort of in the midst of the pandemic, so you know we 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 had it in place, but made it far more robust as we Mm -hmm. moved along. Um, But again, I I think it was stood up like you said uh, seriously over the course of a weekend. It was very rapid, and there are we have to recognize in healthcare that we can't do everything we want to do, or that sounds like a great idea because we do have. Pretty strict regulations to protect mm-hmm. our patients and their health and their care, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But something like this, that, you know, I know when I was, when I was working in Florida, we had, we had thought, well, this would be great if we could stand up telehealth. And it was always, well, I don't really know that this is going to be the investment we want to make. And then all of a sudden it's ping. How quickly could we get telehealth up and running? You know? Mm-hmm. So that's just one example. I and mean, we do, we do nurse triage. I mean, really, you know, after hours telehealth, so there are so many things that have come out of this that we realize um, you know again stepping out of our mainstream healthcare minds which is what we do we're you know open 8 to 5 evening hours a couple of days a week maybe some saturday morning you know maybe urgent care maybe walk in well this is really expanded to say well wait a minute maybe we can keep the patients out of urgent care and be able to provide them the care they need at three o'clock in the morning, if it's not a medical emergency, you know, that we can we can care for them in their homes, help the colicky baby, help the, you know, new mom, et cetera. Um, so it really has been truly remarkable. Um, and, and I think it will change the way we move forward mm-hmm. in healthcare
0: mm-hmm. in many ways. Thanks for sharing that. And I did want to ask you, so earlier you mentioned the staffing issues, the staffing challenges that healthcare is facing, one of the outcomes of that, which was already prevalent um, in healthcare, is added stress, added burnout. So one of the things I, I like to ask people on the show is what, what have they done to find some kind of work-life balance? What have you done during the pandemic to just kind of bring some Level of joy or uh, exercise? Anything that you've been doing to to help your mental health during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I um, it's been it's been crazy. Um, I have been really fortunate in that I am able to work remotely when necessary, and uh, really tried to focus on on you know the health and well being of my team. Um, more than anything, because without, you know, as I said, servant leadership, without my team, I'm nothing. I could walk out tomorrow and the place would run. But if my nurses, my doctors, my, you know, frontline administrators leave, then I'm, then I'm in a bit of trouble. So really trying to ensure that I stayed in touch with them and was able to meet their needs as much as possible. You know, again, with that, not everybody can work remotely. So how do we find you know, the opportunity to support those who have to be in the front line every mm-hmm. single day. And a lot of that comes from the organizational level and age. And it's been great about that. Um, but some of it does come from just checking in and seeing how our team is doing. Um, you know, not everybody was as fortunate as me, you know, being mm-hmm. able to work remotely when necessary. Um, so I have to keep that keep that in mind that, that we have to be thoughtful for those who are out there on the front lines.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. And then on, on a personal level, do you, did you, did you take up guitar lessons or anything else? Off oh of my YouTube goodness. Or, I, I,
1: <laughs> I, my poor husband, he's like, Sue, what are you, what are you going to, what are you going to do now? So <laughs> let's see artisan bread, baking, um, knitting, running, Um, It was actually a joy for me. Both of my daughters were in college at the time and their university, they were both at FSU and their university was closed for a bit. So both of them came home, which for me was, I mean, what a bonus that was. So yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I got a little nuts, (laughs) but I, I like to think of it as, you know, personal growth, but uh, yeah. So. Yeah,
0: it really has been. There've been so many interesting stories. I mentioned the guitar lessons because about four uh, people I had on in a row on the on the podcast all said they were learning how to play guitar. So that was really a thing going on there. But um, yeah, so many people took up different hobbies and passions that they had put off forever, this kind of that isolation and uh, being just kind of a reflective mode allowed people to really explore different aspects of their lives. So, before we sign off, I'd love to ask you just some final words of advice. What would you like to share with uh, the people listening, potential future leaders, people that are already leaders? What what are some final thoughts you'd like to share?
1: Well, I'd like to just revisit my, you know, earlier comments about healthcare leadership and my, you know, my philosophy again. It gets into that servant leadership, but also really important to my motto has always been to check your ego at the door, you know, really, really focus on the mission and vision of your organization, um, being true to yourself while being true to those who are, who are taking care of our patients. And if my theory has always been, and again, simplified, but my theory has always been if you put the patient's. Or the healthcare consumer at the center of every decision you make, there's no way you'll make a bad decision.
0: That's great. Well, Sue, it has been such a joy getting to meet you and learning your leadership journey and your passions in both the professional world and life. So, thanks for sharing these with us today. Daniel, thanks so much for your time. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Sue Vandersamen. If you're interested in furthering your healthcare leadership path, go to mgma.com slash certification to learn more. Also, thanks to MGMA's financial conference and to CareCloud for sponsoring this week's show. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see out a claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting carecloud.com slash assessment. And the Medical Practice Excellence Financial Conference is an industry-leading financial management conference designed to arm healthcare professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. The Financial Conference will be held March 31st through April 2nd in Atlanta, you can go to mgma.com slash events to register today. And if you register by February 8th, you'll qualify for the early bird registration cost. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. And to access all of our podcasts, go to mgma.com slash listen. And if you want to add to the conversation, or suggest experts for us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.